Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host, Corey Lynn of Corey's Digs. How are you feeling today, Corey? I'm doing good. I'm actually looking some stuff up while we're starting. So keep on rolling. <laughs> okay, good deal. Yeah, I'm feeling a little scatterbrained today, so maybe you can kind of help me to navigate through this one. But Oh, I, I have a perfect thing we're going to go over on, on scatterbrain and getting organized. Awesome. Okay, yes, we are going to talk about that. So today we're going to talk about, we have to talk about this East Palestine chemical disaster and all of the fallout. Um, plus, we're going to talk about updates on the WHO pandemic treaty. And then we're going to close out with this navigational to-do list that you just referenced, Corey. So and excited to hear about that. <laughs> so I guess we'll just roll right into it. I mean, we have to talk about this gigantic chemical disaster happening in East Palestine and surrounding areas. Really no idea how far and wide this stretches because there's a lot of people um, who have scientific backgrounds who are raising concerns not just in this area, but of course the authorities won't, won't have you believe that, will they? Right. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific what's going on there. Uh. Yeah, so I want to bring up this letter that the EPA sent out to Norfolk, which is the train company, uh, on February 10th. And in this letter, there are several admissions and things that we really need to kind of discuss and break down. Um, the first is that these deadly chemicals, they state, not only have been, but keyword here, continue to be released into the air, surface soils, and surface waters. I don't know how they can say this water is drinkable and that it's okay for these people to be living there. Right. It's very disturbing. Very yeah. disturbing. They're, they're, yeah. Mm. I have no. many thoughts, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, they also discuss how they've been running tests. And they've detected samples from multiple water sources locally. But most alarmingly, they've detected these chemicals in the Ohio River. And this river, the Ohio River, provides water, drinking water, to 5 million people. Yeah, I saw some of the videos going around with the water and the, the rainbow effect from the chemicals in it and the creeks and everything. It's terrible. Yeah, so this isn't theory. This is, you know, the EPA's own admissions here that they've had detections and samples in the Ohio River. Um, so also... Which, which travels all along the border, if, if I recall, like through a few different states down there, correct? Yes, and it goes into the Mississippi River, which we also need to talk about. Uh, this letter does not... Um, get into that. But um, going back to this EPA letter, they talk about the chemicals that were released, um, which included but are not limited to, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's key word there, not limited to. Okay, so vinyl chloride, of course, being number one, then ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, ethylexyl acolate, isobutylene, and butyl 
acrylate. Okay, so we're all like taking I'm crash. Glad you're the one having to pronounce those. Right, I we're all all of that. <laughs> we're all taking crash <laughs> courses in chemistry here, right? Um, to try to find out what's really going on. But obviously, what this letter fails to recognize is when vinyl chloride is released up into the air without properly being burned off that vinyl chloride has byproducts when it combines with water particles creating um, hydrochloric acid otherwise known as acid rain okay and we'll need to talk about that because people have been showing pictures and so forth of acid rain way far away wow. from the uh, ground zero but not only that the bigger issue is that when not burned off properly, vinyl chloride's byproduct is dioxin. Um, dioxin being the most deadly chemical compound known to man. Okay, we're talking about like Agent Orange compounds here. Mm. Okay. All right, so this EPA letter um, goes on to explain how this was criminally, in my opinion, opinion criminal criminally negligent activity uh, in the way that they handled this train derailment it, it states about how the vinyl chloride was diverted to an excavated trench they don't they don't say this but this is this is accurate here that they didn't line the trench okay it was just open uh. dirt that they poured this vinyl chloride into and then burned it off and mm. then and and then they didn't burn Let's just it. send it all up into the air morons well they didn't send all of it because the epa in this letter notes that contaminated soil and free liquids were observed and covered or filled during the reconstruction of the rail line because constructing the rail line was more important than making sure oh, that good God. Mm -hmm. So they just buried the, you know, some of the rem the remnants of these chemi chemicals, covered them over in order to reconstruct the rail line. Wow. Wow, wow. Yeah. So we need to get into some of these toxins here. So um, what I want to talk about is how the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease, Disease Registry they had updated their um, toxicology profile of vinyl chloride. So this was the the old version, the 2006 version. Well, mm -hmm. they updated the their toxicology report just less than a month before this disaster happened. You can see here, the old one was 2006 17 years later just month you know less than a month before the incident they decided to update their toxicology profile on mm -hmm. vinyl chloride that's Such a coincidence yeah especially when you look at the other dates 89 93 97 so they're rolling in four-year increments and then they skip and they go to 2006 and then they wait all the way until 2023 to do another one exactly wow exactly so it's highly suspicious and so i've read the 2006 one and um i'll just say right out the gate 
um, that the 2006 report appears to be just more straightforward and direct in telling you the ways that vinyl chloride releases into the air, the water, the soil, and the adverse reactions. I mean, I'm only on page, let's see, page three. I mean, it kind of really jumps right into it. And sorry, I'm trying to scroll down. There's like a lot of, (laughs) you know, okay, yeah. There you go. Page three just jumps right into it. You may be exposed by breathing, eating, or drinking the substance, or by skin contact. Um, Goes on to explain what vinyl chloride is. It talks about how liquid vinyl chloride does evaporate easily and how it gets into the water or soil um, and it can evaporate from there, Um, but that it does produce hydrochloric acid. among other chemicals, hydrochloric acid, another word for that is acid rain when it's in the air and combines with water. So um, some final chloride can dissolve in water and migrate to groundwater and can be in groundwater due to breakdown of other chemicals. So they do say here that it, it's unlikely to build up in plants and animals that you might eat. I don't don't mm-hmm. trust that at all. This right? is the Okay, but the... The uh, 2023 version is just a lot more um, complicated. It it appears to be like they're obfuscating here um, what the what the effects are. Okay, but from what I can gather here, this this chart that they have in the most recent one, and this is parts per million of vinyl chloride exposure. And you'll see down here, way down here on the bottom, um, anywhere between 50 to 300 parts per million um, can result in death. And what we've, what I've seen here on the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry website about vinyl chloride is that it states here that vinyl chloride the threshold for a vinyl chloride to smell it in the air is 3,000 parts per million. Wow. Okay, so f- based off of local reports, everyone who goes there says there's a very, very strong chemical smell, meaning yeah. it's it's at it's there at that threshold and way beyond at 3,000 right. parts per million with even the latest toxicology profile stating that anywhere between 50 and 300 could result in death. Now, this when it, it's confusing the way they have this because they're using animals and humans. I suppose that they are using saying like animals have died at this. And, and we have right. seen reports of, of animals dying. Right. Um, but another thing that I wanted to to go back to is the dioxin because um, dioxin being the most deadly chemical compound uh, known to man is the byproduct of an uncontrolled burn and uh, of vinyl chloride. And they've been calling this over and over and over again in the media, all of the politicians, uh, it was a controlled burn. It went as planned, right? Jeez. 
but it's actually an uncontrolled burn. And the person that you're seeing here, uh, I'm going to play this video in just a second. His name is Stephen Petty. Um, Stephen Petty is, um, he is the president and owner of EES Group, which is a forensic engineering environmental health and safety corporation. So his job and that he's been doing for decades now is conducting these types of forensic investigations. He's done thousands of them, and he's served as an expert witness in over 200 legal cases regarding these kinds of sort of chemical spills or environmental disasters, right? So he's not just wow. some Joe Smo. Right. Well, he went to East Palestine to collect samples, and he was interviewed by a couple of people. And in this uh, interview, I want you to note how he talks about the difference between a controlled burn versus an uncontrolled burn. And I also want you to listen to what he talks about when the EPA, uh, what how the EPA is conducting their testing. They are knowing, knowingly using the, the wrong tests to wow. produce results that gives that all clear for the people to like PCR tests. Exactly. Exactly. So there's two videos I'm going to play. Them well, and I want to know how far east of Ohio they're going to go to be testing stuff because we already know this has obviously traveled quite far. Yep. Yep. So two, two videos I'll play back to back. Hold on one second. Okay. We're going to be looking for a lot of chemicals, including dioxin. We're doing a lot of soil sampling and water sampling. My view is that it was a bad decision to release it and burn it. So I have undergraduate and graduate degrees in chemical engineering. I mean, I've brought respirators and stuff with us. The problem is, you, to wear a respirator, you need to know what to protect from, right? Hydrocarbons, acid gases. We're here, I think, the first group independently to try to figure out what's really here, because what they were measuring most of the time is what they call VOCs, which is just some generic it's not a specific chemical, right? I couldn't in good conscience until we get some sampling data know what to protect against. I've been involved in these before. They know that things are going to dissipate with time, so they measure things that don't really matter. There's evidence that when you burn vinyl chloride poorly, and it was definitely burned poorly because it had such a black plume. If you think of in the old days with a carburetor, if you had the air-fuel ratio wrong and you had black smoke, then you had too much fuel, not enough air. And that black is carbon, right? So it doesn't combust all the way to CO2. When there's incomplete combustion, there's, there's evidence that part of the vinyl chloride goes to dioxin, and dioxin is one of the most deadly compounds known. If you measured air, it has a lot of components like oxygen, nitrogen. It might have carbon monoxide, right? So if you measure VOCs, volatile organic carbons, that doesn't tell me anything other than you're measuring carbon. But I want to know, is it vinyl chloride? What is the individual component? So they purposely measure with a cheaper instrument total hydrocarbons, but I want to know what the components are. No, they wouldn't intentionally measure. Mm -hmm. You've got a control burn? Well, there's the lie. It wasn't a controlled burn, it was an uncontrolled burn. See, I'm a chemical engineer as well, as well as a top health and safety guy. I've got undergraduate and graduate degrees in chemical engineering. You're so. the first actual expert that we've gotten to speak to. In your opinion, why do you believe that it was an uncontrolled burn? Why are you using that terminology when so far everywhere else we've seen that it was a controlled burn? You could go to a place called West Liverpool downriver, and that's where they burn hazardous waste. And in a hazardous waste uh, situation, they very carefully control the temperature and the amount of oxygen so that they get complete combustion, right? It's time, temperature, and, and amount of the air-fuel ratio. 
there's no controlling of the amount of air that gets in there. That's why you saw all that soot. So it's not a controlled burn because a controlled burn would have to be like in a furnace or in your car or some system where you control the fuel and in other words, the vinyl chloride and the amount of oxygen. So they didn't do that. So it's an uncontrolled burn. One of the worst ways to um, determine exposure in general is to smell it because if you smell the odor, guess what? You're already exposed, right? How long have you been doing this? Um, 30 years. I'm in most of the big named lawsuits as an exposure expert. It's a privilege. I get called in to try to figure some of this stuff out. So that's my job always is what really happened, you know? Wow. I keep saying wow, but I'm really not surprised. I mean, where are we at with what are they... Uh, what are they doing as far as the people? Have we made any progress? Because I've been out of the loop the past few days. What do you What do you mean on the people? The, the people of the town. Like, they've completely blown off the people of the town. Are they starting to do anything to help the people now at this point? Well, yeah, now since Trump went there. Okay, so Trump showed up this week. Yeah, I didn't even know that. <laughs> That's okay. how out of the loop I've been working on my report. Yeah, I didn't I didn't pull up that video, but that is just all over. It's being blasted everywhere. The people of East Palestine, it's a very rural community, small town. Um, I think I would venture to say it's mostly conservative that when Trump showed up, there were tons of people lined up everywhere with FJB signs and shouting and cheering for Trump. He had a truck haul tons of food and water to the location, and the people were just very, very receptive of him. And since Tr the announcement of Trump going, then they were like, okay, well, you know, yeah, we'll send some assistance. But it's always a, too late, too late, right. too little, too late for these guys um, because they, I think, um, want they want this kind of disaster. They don't care um, about the people whatsoever. Right. But um, just kind of going to um, the, the damages of this. I mean, we've had multiple reports of animals dying off and getting sick from fish to chickens and birds, as well as foxes. I haven't heard anything more on animals. I do know pe some people have gotten sick, but dioxin is very, very serious. It leads to DNA damage, it, cancer, infertility, birth defects, a host of major adverse reactions. And there have been reports of plumes of this stuff uh, spreading far and wide uh, via the wind and the water. So like as far uh, north as Durham, Canada, as far east as New York City and Boston, and as far south as Kentucky. Um, so uh, talks about, you know, um, acid rain. There's, there's pictures, I believe, in here. People smelling strange smells, uh, reports of residue on cars that r resemble oh, acid rain um, in, you know, th hundreds of miles away. So, wow. Um, yeah, and some are calling this, you know, this may be the largest dioxin plume in world he uh, world history. Um, but the concern is, and now that we know that they've detected it in the Ohio River, is it going, you know, even into the Mississippi River. And so, 
there's really no telling how far and wide this chemical disaster it is going to to affect um right. an, an impact and i saw this video here this is david Devine, which Oh yeah, he you've is. right We right had you him on the solution series. exactly i was just gonna say that and he did a great breakdown just a few d days ago on this disaster in this recent video And he raised a lot of legitimate questions about how this is going to affect farming. I mean, they're telling everyone it's safe to drink the water. Um, this is clearly already in the Ohio River, possibly spilling uh, into the Mississippi River, affecting the water for millions and millions of people. And so are they going to just let the farmers produce crops using this soil and this water? and then feed those crops to millions of people or are they going to um you know for, for ohio for example is a top agricultural producer for the country Right. so um that's the question is were they going to deem this land to be toxic and like like the love canal incident for example which i didn't know much about i've researched it since this incident in comparison to it where they evacuated all of the people in that town and the government just scooped up that land and put, so are Hmm. they going to do that same sort of a thing and put a vast amount of farming out of production to create more shortages? What are your thoughts on that? Well, so I have a thought on that. And so in a quick search, <laughs> I always seem to, to like nail it right on that first search. I, I and, and this is far away from there, but it, it raises the question. So because I was thinking, well, gosh, if let's just say this was somehow, you know, premeditated and uh, who's, who's gunning for land over there? What's going on in, in Ohio? So I just did a quick search in Ohio and then Um, of course, you know, found this on Bill Gates on January 27th. Uh, this article came out about Ohio regulators setting a public hearing for proposed solar farm on Bill Gates property. Now, this is a few hours west of there. Um, but a lot of people have been asking for a long time now, hey, what's Bill Gates doing with all this farmland? Well, Wouldn't it make sense for the smart cities and the grid to be setting up solar farms all across the country? So he has, there's a hearing scheduled. It's in Madison County um, <clears throat> that is going to be one of the largest solar farms in the country on land owned mostly by Bill Gates. So it's scheduled for April 11th is the hearing. And um, yeah. We don't have to get into that because we have a lot more to cover, but I just thought that was an interesting little find there. Right. And I think that you're on to something here. I think one possible motive, because I do think that this is intentional. I do think that this is a terrorist attack, if you want to just put it bluntly. And Mm-hmm. um, who stands to gain from it? And you can start looking at the many players involved, which we can get into. But I do find this interesting um, that um, just in uh, late January, There was a community sort of hearing where they're trying to propose new um, new uh, rules, laws um, to um, charge a $400 per building fee 
to any vacant building. So if you're an owner of a vacant building, you would then have to pay a $400 fee. And Hmm. some, and so this town um, is sort of a dying town, not a lot of work there. Um, a lot of properties have gone kind of vacant. And so owners of these properties are saying, well, this claim that it's to help eliminate vacant properties, that's not really what this has to do with. What they're really trying to do is drive out businesses and development of the town. And so um, it does seem like there's this push to mm, vacate this town one way or another. Let's just put it that way. And however many towns surrounding it. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. So what's up? So what's up with the guys on the ground and the plane crash, or how that ties in? Because I I did see a lot of that flying around this morning. So what's yeah. going on with that part? Yeah. Let me just put one more. Um, you know, uh, the cherry on top here, as far okay, as the players behind it. Um, you know, of course, Vanguard and BlackRock have to be the top shareholders in the train company, Norfolk Southern. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about, like, say, if they wanted this land to be used for smart cities or for solar farms or who God knows what, mm-hmm. and they're trying to create some sort of disaster that would be like a love canal where they have to evacuate everybody eventually, um, you know, some of the players involved could be quite possibly Vanguard and BlackRock when you see who's behind, you know, the backing of Norfolk Southern, right? Right. All right. So um, just a couple, I want to make just a couple more quick points. And some of these things have already been brought up, but they're worth noting. Um, Talk about predictive programming. So Netflix created this film about toxic chemicals um, spilling in East Ohio. And even East Palestinians were some of the extras in this movie. This movie came out in November 2022. Um, and it's very eerily reminiscent of the actual event. And just another example of predictive programming. I mean, what are the odds? It, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. And then I need, I need to point this out. Um, so just last month, um, East Palestine decided to to launch a MyID biometrics health surveillance system for all their local residents. What? Okay, yes, starting January 29th, this uh, MyID biometrics uh, system, so you wear a device and it taps into all your biometrics so they can follow your health. Right. Oh my God. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know this one. Well, there you go. That's yes. the cherry on top right there, Edge. I know. Right. Just too yeah. many coincidences here. Okay. Wow. So, now- so, so, so let's track this and now let's track. So I wonder with that, I, that ID, has anyone looked into other towns and other states nearby that could be impacted by this so that they're able to track them as well. Cause I bet we'll find that this whole, my ID thing here is, has been introduced in other surrounding areas so they can track the distance of the repercussions, you know? Exactly. Exactly. We need to look into that. Wow. Yeah, just so much, so much fallout from this whole thing and so many strange coincidences. And, and so what better to do with vacant land that you definitely can't farm and you don't want to live on um, for however many years to come is to just build massive solar farms and 
God knows what else. Right, right. So now comes this news. I mean, this the story just keeps piling on every day. There's something new. So now this news comes out about uh, the, the team of five people dying in a plane crash. This was in Little Rock, Arkansas, dying, um, taking, uh, departing from the Clinton Airport, no less, right? <laughs> the Clinton yeah. Airport in Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow. So these five people work for a consult- consulting firm. And this consulting firm is called CTEH, okay, or otherwise known as the Center for Toxicology and Environmental Health, all right. So this is a so-called environmental testing firm, okay, and Mm -hmm. they have a very long history of really just lying or misrepresenting test results in order to serve corporate interests, okay? So not a shocker that Norfolk hired them. They are the consulting firm, the environmental consulting firm for Norfolk in East Palestine. And this particular firm has been going around and persuaded, already persuaded about 340 residents in East Palestine. Persuaded or blackmailed or bribed? Well, I think from what I understand is that what they're doing is they're knocking on doors and saying, hey, we're going to provide you with free testing um, and we'll give you $1,000 or something to that effect. You just have to sign here. Okay. And these residents who may not be, you know, all the wiser are signing these things, not realizing that they're waiving their legal rights to go after Norfolk for this catastrophe. Okay. So this is CTEH, the company that's working for Norfolk that had a five members of their firm crash in a plane from heading out from Arkansas at the Clinton airport. And this um, plane wasn't even actually heading to East Palestine, although they do have people on the ground in East Palestine from this firm. This plane was actually heading to another disaster that happened just on Monday. So, um, these rep- re- representatives were on their way to Bedford, Ohio, to investigate an- yet another fire. This one was at a metal manufacturing facility, and this fire occurred on Monday. So um, here's the the footage. How far is that from East Palestine? Bedford, Ohio. I, I gosh, I don't know. I'm sorry. That's yeah. okay. Not far. But this was another you know disaster that just just happened this week, but. Um, this raises the, the the broader discussion about how we've seen just this rash of fires and explosions. Um, we've had a lot of suspicious fires in 2022 and 2023, particularly attacking our food supply. And you could go through a list of at least 20, maybe even 100 of those um, happening in 2022. That spilled over still into 2023. There was a massive fire at an egg uh production facility, killing over 100,000 hens, egg-laying hens. So it's just this um, ongoing story of too many fires and explosions to be a coincidence at this point. Yeah. So Bedford is 72 miles northwest of East Palestine. 
Okay. Curious. We had uh, uh, this fire happened in Florida um, just last week. So, I mean, it's just, Jeez. yeah. So, um, and, and so it seems like instead of really going at the food supply now, these are going more of like industrial fires and explosions. It's moved into a different phase, sort of. But I watched this really interesting interview, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, so this interview was conducted by, recently, um, I would say within the last month or so, um, this re- this interview was conducted by um, Emerald Robinson, and she um, she interviewed the EcoHealth Alliance whistleblower. His name is Dr. Andrew Huff. Okay, you may have heard of him. He blew the, the whistle on EcoHealth. He worked for them for some time. And he disclosed and produced his own documents that were unredacted of the gain-of-function research that EcoHealth did um, and was a part of and that led up to COVID. Okay, so Dr. Andrew Huff has done uh, a lot of work, um, scientific work, um, a lot of it contracting with the government, okay? And one of the things that he did um, was, as he explained in this interview, his job was to analyze and run simulations on critical infrastructure, and this is including the food supply. So he called this sort of like a roadmap to attack critical infrastructure. So what he would do is he would map out all the critical infrastructure, map out the entire food system and all of these facilities, and run the simulations on if what happens if I attack this, what's the fallout of it, what happened, oh, wow. that kind of a thing. Okay, here's what he said, though. He said that somewhere around 2019, a copy of this data went missing. And so this was sort of a time when he was he discusses about how he had been harassed by the government. And so then 2021, 2020, 2021, 2022, all of the things that have happened, um, but particularly last year with all of these fires and explosions and everything, he started thinking, wow, you know, I wonder if I line this up with my my uh, research that I did because he had a backup version. So he compared the attacks that have happened over the course of, I don't know, the last year or so um, to his data and said it was almost a perfect match, meaning he believes this is intentional, a a strategic attack of critical infrastructure and food systems. And um, in other words, I mean, fifth generation unrestricted warfare. Do we have the maps? Do we know the locations? He does. He has the data. I don't know if he's released it. Has he like, contacted those locations to warn them? <laughs> to, I don't know. But what he did I say, mean... he said that he contacted the FBI and I believe the DHS oh um, and said, look, there's a huge, very strong correlation between the data that I worked on and these fires and explosions that are happening. Um, and nobody has contacted him. But as not. I've said, I mean, he he's on the, you know, the the target list because he's the eco health whistleblower. He's been right. 
um, sort of harassed by the government for years now. So they're obviously not willing to cooperate with him and um, not surprised at all that they didn't respond when he let them know that there's um, a correlation here, that this yeah. is beyond coincidence, that this is fifth generation warfare attacks on our critical infrastructure. I would have contacted all those places, told them to tighten up security and keep be hyper vigilant, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So wow. what are what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think see this as all being coordinated? And, and the real well, question yeah, I mean, is it, by who? It, it surely seemed coordinated. Um, you know, like you see the first few happen and you're like, wow, what are they up to? Or how many of these have happened in the past years? You know, because before I jump to conclusions, I always want to look at the history and see, like, are we overreacting to this? Is this totally normal? Is this, you know, and we're just, it's just that our eyes are up and down. We're paying more closer attention to it, but my God, it became so obvious. It was just one after another, after another. So yeah, I definitely have believed for, you know, for a long time that this is all very coordinated. Yeah. And so the question is by who is it a, a, several uh, groups that are aligned is it an inside job is it a state actor um is it all of the above I'm just going to sum it up to the main globalists behind the central banks and bis and trickling all the way down <laughs> through the bloodlines and the families the ones that control all the money that are operating and pulling the strings on all of this yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so the network is so huge. It runs through every agency, every freaking state, um, all your major cities. I mean, they've got people planted everywhere. True. All right. So that was uh, pretty much everything I had for you on the updates of the East Palestine disaster, unless there was anything else that you wanted to talk about before we roll into the Hubihantimic Treaty stuff. No, let's roll into that because we're like already running out of time. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So let's get through the who stuff quickly because this is basically a recap kind of bringing us up to date with where we are now. But then I also had something that I'm going to read really fast um, when you're done bringing us up to date, Edge. All right. So the WHO pandemic treaty is still rolling out. The intergovernmental or intergoverning body is working on the final touches. So um, they've produced what they call a zero draft here. Um, this was put out on February 1st. Um, and so this zero draft is kind of like their document that they've worked up so far. Um, and they are going to meet on the 27th to work out the final terms of this and make some some last minute adjustments. Um, essentially contains about what 50 points of control mechanisms. Mm hmm. Yeah, I went through it and highlighted what I could from it, you know, recognizing that the who is, you know, basically the the authority Um and that they get to say if a pandemic is, you know, worthy of, you know, uh, of a global response, right? And right. that all of these states have to um, comply. They do talk a lot about One Health in this, which is yep. interesting yep. because, again, they're trying to wrap in. It was created by the Rockefellers. 
yeah, they're trying to wrap in all of the critical infrastructure, right? The food systems, um, everything, everything One falls under this umbrella. Mm -hmm. Surveillance and control of everything uh, in this document. So, um, yeah, but so they are meeting um, on the 27th in just a, a few days now um, for, you know, making the final touches. They'll have uh, one more um, intergovernmental body meeting um, for any more final touches. And then, you know, one more meeting. And then in May, they're having their um, general assembly where they could possibly vote on this pandemic treaty. And they're seeking to get a ratification by 194 member states. And so um, I know that you wanted to talk about this I, real briefly, and then I'll hand it over to you. I just wanted to let everybody know that this week, uh, Senator Ron Johnson had proposed a um, a bill. It's called the No Who Pandemic Preparedness Treaty Without Senate Approval Act. Okay, so this legislation would require any convention or agreement resulting from the work of the World Health, Health Organization uh, deemed as a treaty and requiring the consent of a supermajority or two thirds vote in the Senate. Okay. So, nice. yeah. So they're it, making it essentially impossible. I think that a two thirds vote to ratify the WHO's pandemic treaty would be damn near impossible. And so um, it's a great way to. To, to stop this pandemic treaty uh question is will this bill make it through and the bigger question is will it matter because here's some things i want to bring to people's attention that i haven't really seen people talking about so first off if it does let's remind everyone that the who being part of the un has full immunity and privileges and tax exemptions so um <laughs> Those with full immunities, in fact, most of the people that ran the whole COVID pandemic deal um, were gov uh, international organizations that all had immunities and privileges. So they operate outside the law. This has been long designed since the 30s. So I was looking into, this was actually for something else I'm working on, but I came across this and I thought, you know, this is really interesting. Uh, it's And it's a Senate hearing, it's the transcript that's three miles long from a Senate hearing back in 2020 when Trump was still in and there were talks about pulling out of the hoop. And I want to point out a couple of things because we basically have, it's not just the who or the UN, you know, at the top here. We've got essentially like three health-related global dictators. We've got the who with 194 member states. We have PEHO, which is the, you know, Pan-American Health Organization, which is the entire Western Hemisphere, making up 52 member states. We have, which we are a part of, and of course, the biggest funders too. We have GHSA, which is the Global Health Security Agenda that was created in 2014 with 70 countries involved in that. So understand that these people have layers they always have their backup plan and their other backup plan and their other backup plan. And we already saw what happened without this treaty being in place over the last few years. So we know that Biden calling out federal health emergency after health emergency, you know, 
national emergencies and federal emergencies and to keep the ball rolling. And all the NGOs and the corporations with your top shareholders, BlackRock and Vanguard, they all are controlling mechanisms. And so really what it came down to was two things, in my opinion. One is the people not complying and the states pulling away from the federal mandates and protecting the people of their state. So regardless, and I don't know the legalities of this, maybe someone can chime in and help me out with this um, in the comments, but I know that like Wyoming, I believe has come out and said, they're not going to, even if this was to go through, they're not going to, um, you know, take any kind of orders from the who. Um, I got to believe states have the uh, authority to be able to do that. That's what needs to happen, but not just with the who. Pulling out of the who is one thing, but we need to pull completely out of the UN. I mean, and the federal government, and we need to be operating on a state level. So I want to read, and I'll read fast. Um, I just, there's no particular order. I'm not going to sit and name who said what and this and that, because really I just want to get to some of the meat of this, the facts of this, so people understand um, what these other organizations do and where they're, where the line of thinking is on the control mechanisms of this. So they say, switching to the global health security agenda, 18 months, This now this is from the transcript, uh, 18 months into phase two called GHSA 2024, the need for a multi-sectoral approach to pandemic preparedness is greater now than ever. GHSA was created in the midst of the 2014 West Africa Ebola crisis to help countries comply with the IHRs. GHSA is a group of 67 countries. It's up to 70 now. Uh, international organizations, NGOs, and companies working together to prepare for infectious disease threats. Under GHSA, nations make concrete commitments to elevate health security and improvement capacities to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious diseases as a national priority. GHSA members provide support for implementation through advocacy, collaboration, information sharing, and technical advice. The U.S. is a leading voice on the GHSA 2024 steering group as chair of the Accountability and Results Task Force, ensuring the focus on addressing gaps and challenges in countries' core capacities. The target is to have more than 100 countries with improved capacities by 2024. It seeks to improve accountability and track, tracks partner commitments in a transparent manner. We also collaborate with partners as chair of the Sustainable Financing for Preparedness Action Package to mobilize resources for preparedness. HHS works with many countries to improve health security capacities pursuant to GHSA commitments. This includes helping complete a joint external evaluation to assess preparedness, developing national action plans and mobilizing resources. As GHSA core capacities are based on the international health regulations, both efforts I have discussed leading, uh, leading GHSA 2024 and forging ahead on WHO reforms focused on strengthening the IHRs are mutually reinforcing and will help bring about a safer world. Since the launch of GHSA, the United States government has invested over $3 billion to strengthen national capacity in partner countries to prevent, detect, and respond to existing and emerging infectious disease threats. Question, how does the U.S. plan to partner with other countries on global health initiatives without being a WHO member? Because remember, this is when they were talking about pulling out of the WHO. 
Answer, the United States partnership with many countries on global health is not dependent upon our membership in WHO. U.S. leadership on global health has been uncontested for decades, and that will remain so. In fact, several signature U.S.-led global health initiatives, such as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief and the President's Malaria Initiative, were created in part because the international community, including WHO, were not able to put sufficient resources toward fighting HIV, AIDS, or malaria. The United States government is committed to maintaining and even strengthening our leadership in the field of global health, notwithstanding our relationship with WHO. Among other activities, WHO is leveraging its global reach and convening power to support an unprecedented effort to identify effective treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. The organization's solidarity trial, in which more than 100 countries are now participating, could, due to its wide geographic breadth and inclusion of diverse demographic groups under one umbrella, reduce the time needed to evaluate the effectiveness of specific treatment regimes by 80%. The United States has contributed significantly to the establishment of the solidarity trial by writing the master clinical trial protocol used. This is critical because the majority of ongoing clinical trials globally are observational or underpowered and will not result in data that can be used to support safety and efficacy of investigational therapeutics. The United States, through leadership at HHS, the National, National Institute of Health, has launched a series of robust clinical trials. In undertaking these studies directly, the U.S. has moved out significantly faster in enrolling patients in robust clinical trials, making determination of investigational products efficacy and sharing their results with the global community. Some have suggested that the WHO, unlike jumping around to different sections, uh, just so people get the full scope, some have suggested that the WHO has neither the mandate nor the capacity to hold countries accountable for failing to uphold obligations under the international health regulations. That can probably be fixed. Others have suggested that it does not have the will. That's a much harder fix. And so perhaps it's time for us to recognize that the WHO is a convening mechanism, a guardian of the IHR, and a clearinghouse of norms and best practices, and stop asking it to be something it's not. I've repeatedly asked, who do we call when an outbreak begins before it gets out of control? Who is the fire department? I've repeatedly been disappointed by the response. One thing is clear, it's not the WHO, at least not today. So who is it? Who responds to the alarm? If the mandate capacity and will do not yet exist, to whom and where should they be vested? Who raises the alarm? How can we improve and expand early warning at a global level so we can get ahead of an outbreak before it spins out of control? The global health security agenda provides a useful framework for addressing these issues. How can we more effectively operationalize it? And how can we incentivize countries to prioritize global health security, strengthen preparedness and response, and share critical global health data? Is there a way we can better support countries with demonstrated will but low capacity? And importantly, how do we incentivize innovation, including for the development, manufacturing, and equitable deployment of vaccines and countermeasures? From a multilateral perspective, the world has come together and created the Global Health Security Agenda, or GHSA, as has been noted. However, GHSA is not the fire department. GHSA provides an action plan for every country to have an emergency operations center or EOC capable of mounting a response to an outbreak within two hours. At least in my view, the EOC must also be responsible for continual surveillance down to the community level with systematic reporting to rapidly detect an outbreak. We need a global EOC as the fire department. 
A global effort on pandemics and a global ELC cannot be effective without the deep engagement of who? So this illustrates to me, <laughs> they've got backup plans and backup plans and they've already created these other branches that they've got locked in place that are all already doing what they're saying they're going to do with this treaty. They've already been doing this, you know? This right. If it's not the who, then it's this global health security agenda, which apparently is part of the United States. Like it's a United States initiative, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So um I'm not I'm not trying to say this isn't important, that all of this is important. It's just even if the who pandemic treaty doesn't go through, we still have to watch out because there are elements obviously within our own government that are going to seek to. Even if even if nothing went through, mm-hmm. the control mechanisms start from the top and they go all the way down through. We saw it over the past few years. So it really comes back to do not comply and talk with your state representatives to get them to create more of a sovereign state for the people get out of the federal systems, get out of these, these other organizations altogether. Right. You know, I mean, that's what it, no matter what happens, that's what it just is going to keep coming back to. When you were reading that, a um, couple of things pointed out to me. It's funny how they were saying, because this was back in 2020. So you right. you have to wonder how long this pandemic treaty has been um, planned, right? Because they're saying, but who doesn't have the power yet? Yeah. But- but that yep. can be fixed. That can yep. probably I know. be fixed. <laughs> I know. The other thing that, that that pointed out that really jumped out to me was this deadline for 2024. There's a lot of deadlines for 2024. This was back in 2020 they were talking about this, right? Right. Yep. So they were already planning for 2024. A couple of things that come um, to mind with 2024. There's two big things. This is this WHO pandemic treaty vote, right? So if it doesn't pass... Yep. If it doesn't pass this year in General Assembly, their their actual um, original deadline was for 2024. And then the other thing it, that obviously happens in 2024 is the U.S. presidential election. Um, and the when I was reading through the omnibus, um, there's a lot of planning and preparing uh, for the next pandemic um, put into that legislation and a lot of deadlines for 2024. Um, it raises yeah. concern, major concerns for me as far as another so-called outbreak, right, in that yeah. window, um, perhaps after the WHO's General Assembly where they vote to give the WHO more power, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, just prior to a presidential election that they need to try to steal. So, well, and the other thing, too, is I look at, you know, the way this rolled out across different states and uh, as far as mandates and lockdowns and when each state put those in place and when various states pulled out of them. Um, and, and it was all on kind of a state by state basis, right? I mean, I, I wrote a book showing the map of like which states are, are saying that you cannot mandate the jabs or you cannot mandate the masks. And this was a whole huge battle. So that showed them that the states are gonna step up some when they need to. So even if this were to lock in place, um, international law or not, I, I don't know that that, that is going to hold some level of precedence over what the state's authority. 
Right, right. I need, I need, I need someone to chime in and tell me, you know, the legalities of that. But and these states need to be reactionary, not reactionary, but they need to be proactive. They need to be pushing through legislation right now, seeing the writing on the wall that before Mm -hmm. the 2024 presidential election, there's going to be a lot more shenanigans, and um, the WHO pandemic treaty being one of them, and all of this preparedness for the next so-called pandemic got has got me a little concerned um, about what kind of crap they're willing to pull. If they're willing to pull in East Palestine, if they're willing to blow up a Russian pipeline, what else are they willing to do? Um, I think that anything is literally on the table. And so states need to be um, proactive right now, passing legislation um, to secure the sovereignty of their citizens and protect against this um, international overreach not even federal at this point but complete uh, you know one world government overreach right right yeah absolutely so dude we're like out of time and i haven't even gone through my my list here let's go through Um, it you want to yeah let's do it okay um so i was i was doing this late last night (laughs) I was talking with a friend actually, and then this just kind of popped in my head and I'm like, oh, I got to write this up. So hopefully this will help some people. I am a big fan of to-do lists and I like structure and I like organization um, when it comes to getting projects and getting things done. And so, but I work too much and I'm not very balanced. So <laughs> And I know right now, like people get hung up in social media for like six hours in a day, or they're just distraught and they don't know where to start. Or do I prep or do I do this or do we move? Or, you know, it's a lot. We're all going through a lot right now. And so I thought I'm going to create some navigational to-do lists that other people could take and kind of make their own. Um, And what would work for them? Uh, Because I think the feeling of having stuff in order is really important and then having a sense of strength and power and getting getting rid of that fear is really important and um still laughing and having fun and living your life is super important right now so i've got four lists and it's basically how to create a bucket list a prep list a battle list and a spiritual and prayer list Um, in order to maintain balance. And so what I have here in my notes is first create the bucket list because this is going to get the creative juices flowing. It's going to build excitement and joy and just things that you've always wanted to do. They can be little things where you could knock one out a week. They could be big things. Um, You know, they could be things like maybe you've never gone camping or horseback riding or water skiing or Maybe you want to take a painting class or sculpting or something, or maybe you want to go skydiving. Uh, Maybe you want to travel and explore places, or you want to learn some new skills, you know, Um, or maybe you want to learn another language, which, hey, could come in handy in the future. So my dream is, one of my dreams has always been I wanted to get an an Airstream. And uh, so I actually sold my my little townhome recently and I am on the hunt for an Airstream. And so I think it's important that people create all the things they really want to do and knock them out, either do one a week, do a couple a month. And then once you get that list put together, 
then work on the, uh, you know, while creating it, you probably hit some roadblocks. Like you might not want to travel to certain countries right now. So, so then work on your prep list. And I know some people, certainly our listeners have probably already done some of the prepping, if not all of their prepping. Um, but this is really important and not just like with your food and water and energy supplies, medical, but like your finances, wills and trusts, um, communications, comms, radios, you know, arrangements, locations, what your plan of actions are, you know, sit down with the family and kind of figure out, um, for different game plans, different scenarios and different items. And, you know, you're not, not everyone's going to be able to afford everything that's on their list, but Hey, maybe your neighbors have some of those items and you guys can share or you can trade, or, you know, it's really important to get together with your friends and family and neighbors, people, you know, nearby to kind of go over some of this stuff. Um, and then while you're working on that, once you get those things or at least get a chunk of them and slowly chip, then start chipping away at it. It gives you more of that little bit of security blanket, you know, and, and some people will say just prep for six months. Personally, I would prep for longer than that. Um, I would, and this is just me, like I'm not, I'm not about storing my money away, whether it's in a bank or it's in gold and silver or crypto or any of that, like in my mind, spend the money on the things you need for yourself and your family to have those items, whether it's land, whether it's a trailer, whether it's, um, you know, the food supplies or whatever it may be that you come up with, get those things now, like spend the money on that. Now, if you have the money to do it, um, I just keep thinking of like the people that get to be, you know, 80 or 90 years old and they, they're sitting there with like a couple million dollars in the bank going, nope, I've got it in my will and trust that when I die, it's going to go to my grandkids or my kids. And they don't want to spend any of it while they're still alive and have that enjoyment of seeing it help the people they love. I just, I've never understood that, but um, so that's kind of like my frame of mind in thinking about the whole prepping scenario. Then there's the battle list. And this one's important because this is your strategy on like, th I have three different categories for this. So one is on a personal family level, one's on a local community and one's on a state level. So if you sit down with your family and you go, okay, what is it? we're all in agreement on, or maybe in some cases, you're not going to be in agreement on some of it. But when it comes to the schools for your kids, when it comes to the COVID jabs, when it comes to, uh, you know, a digital ID coming out or filling out forms at doctor's offices, what information you're going to give, um, where, you know, are you ready to ditch your smartphone? Um, you know, like go over all the things that, I call battle strategy uh, for personal and family. Um, you know, are you guys looking at different locations you might consider moving or you want to start a homestead or whatever's going to work best for your family. Then on the local community level, figure out um, 
you know, what's happening in your town are coming to your town, such as various mandates. All of a sudden there's street cameras going up everywhere. I've actually seen that in, in my town. Uh, changing zoning to like low-income housing and possible possibly for refugees. Rules on rainwater, having chickens, uh, how they're spending the, your taxpayer money. Are they building up infrastructure for a smart city? Like pay attention to what's going on and then figure out, okay, do I want to get involved with a group with my neighbors to combat this? Do we want to do flyers? Do we want to do town hall meetings? Contact our city councilmen. Um, you know, definitely contact the local sheriff unless, you know, you're in a situation where the sheriff's not going to do a damn thing for you. Um, the local mayor, you know, figure out where you want to put your time in and create a schedule around that. So you're not spinning your wheels. I see a lot of people are spinning their wheels. They're frantic. They don't know what to do. So this kind of creates a little bit of a structure and organization and where you're going to put your time and energy. And then at the state level, of course, we have all different concerns um, that when you're seeing stuff coming out of the federal government, that's when you hit up the state reps and, um, you know, approach them, email them, call them, make other people aware of what's going on. And so it, you know, it's an ongoing battle that's going to change from month to month and year to year. But I think it's important to figure out like how many hours a week do I want to dedicate towards this? Like how much do I want to dedicate towards the personal family building up and with the local community and getting in with the local farmers? And then how much time do I want to spend on the state level? Beyond that, I don't think anyone has more time beyond that, you know? And yeah. then the, um, the fourth one is the, uh, the spiritual and prayer list. And this is really important because I think a lot of people, obviously we all are frustrated and we're angry and there's a lot of stress. So it's important to, um, create like an exercise schedule, walking out in nature, meditating, create prayer lists for people building up strength and, and spending time with friends and family and laughing because the key is to release the fear and to get yourself in a state where you feel stronger and more powerful. Um, and these are things that need to be done on a daily basis. You know, I mean, you can get together with friends once or twice a week, but as far as the other stuff, I think it's really important, um, you know, get up in the morning, do a run or do some form of exercise in the afternoon or evening, pray, meditate, you know, go for a walk out in nature to get grounded, uh, go to a shooting range, take a self-defense class, um, or a sport or something that's going to get the adrenaline flowing. That's going to, you know, kind of build up that strength and power because, we're this is spiritual warfare so i think 100 i think the bucket list and the spiritual and uh prayer lists will be much more enjoyable than the prep list and the battle list but i think yeah. that they're all important to create a form of kind of structure and balance in your life. And then, you know, you stick to those, get yourself to stick to those and stay focused on those. So you're not 
getting distracted by 20 million things going on and then going, oh my gosh, I didn't prep for this. Or, oh my gosh, I haven't worked out in a week. You know, like I often find myself saying. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. I absolutely love how you broke this down because all of them are essential. And I found myself um, in times uh, recently um, focusing more on the prep list and battle list um, and, and lapsing on the bucket list and prayer list. Although, um, self-correcting and you know going back to those important things that are really really um necessary to have that you know that well-roundedness in this time um the the prayer list just prayer 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 so important because for Mm -hmm. me and for my family we've been doing that a lot you know making incorporating it in our daily lives together and um that sense of security, uh, just in knowing that, um, that there is a greater plan and that, um, that, that God is on our side. And so, um, we, we really do try to focus on that, but yeah, you're that, that's a really awesome idea that the bucket list and like, I, we're doing like a lot of self-improvement stuff. Like our, my kids just picked up guitar. My, my husband plays guitar all the time. And cool. so, yeah, so the kids. I have a guitar, but I don't know how to play very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's where like we're incorporating that into the daily routine and cool. um, exercise and boxing and playing basketball. Like, so like all of these things are important. I think, um, and especially like when you have kids, it's, it's so important to give them a sense of normalcy and security, because if we're feeling that fear, if we're feeling that stress, they are definitely feeling it. Listen, fear feeds the monster. That Mm -hmm. that's what does it. We need to start creating our own storyline. They are creating a storyline for us and sucking us in as, as, you know, actors into their storyline. And we need to change that shit up. Agree. Agree. So all of these things, crucial, crucial, crucial aspects um, of um, for having that balance bucket list, prep list, battle list and prayer list. I think that you had, you broke that down beautifully. So um, lots of things on those lists that I personally have that I still need to check off. But I, when, as you were going through them, um, lots of things that I've, I've done or am in the process of. So I think that's a really great way of breaking it down and saying, okay, look, I've, I've really accomplished this. I can kind of move on to that and, um, you know, not feel this feeling of uh, just like insecurity and scatterbrained and, you know, right. Right. And, and stripping of identity and gender and all that stuff. Nope. I'm going to get up. I'm going to do my yoga and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do some prayers and, you know, visualize the future as being a beautiful place to live and the globalists are not in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to end this. So yeah. uh, thanks so much for sharing that navigational to-do list. And um, I hope you guys got something out of it as much as I did. All right, guys. So please be sure to share this podcast. We're on BitChute, Foxhole, Gab TV, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Pilled, Rumble, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. No longer on YouTube, so please be sure to subscribe to our other platforms, and we will see you back next time right here on Dig It. 